Hi, everybody, and welcome to another edition of the Southern Fried Podcast. I'm Rex Nelson, Senior Editor of the Arkansas Democrat Gazette. Every couple of weeks, we get together with interesting Arkansans, and I'm happy to have uh, one of my favorite historians this morning, Dr. John Kirk from the University of Arkansas at Little Rock. Now, you're going to uh, you're going to recognize this accent if you listen to radio because uh, he he's long been a fixture on public radio KUAR here in Little Rock with his Arkansas moments taking us back, especially during the civil rights era in Arkansas. So, uh, John, thank you. You're you're no uh, you're no stranger to a microphone. So I, I knew this would be an easy conversation. My pleasure to be here, Rex. Thanks for having me along. A wonderful new book, and I've, I've just finished it. I've got to tell you, I really enjoy it. Winthrop Rockefeller, From New Yorker to Arkansas, 1912 to 1956. And before we get into the book itself, which, as I told you, I can highly recommend, I want to know, I mean, in my mind, you are the expert on the civil rights era in Arkansas, one that, uh, you know, whereas other researchers of the era tended to focus on other states, whether they be Mississippi or Alabama, is a guy who was raised and educated in the United Kingdom. I, I have always been interested in how you got interested in Arkansas and especially, and especially the civil rights era in the state of Arkansas. Yeah, I think uh, many Arkansans and, uh, you know, many people in the United States don't really realize how big of an international story the civil rights movement was. And I grew up in Manchester in the northwest of England. And, you know, I grew up with African-American culture as an important part of my background. You know, there's that great footage of uh, that great Arkansan uh, sister Rosetta Tharp mm-hmm. playing an electric guitar. From a cotton plant. That's right. On a Manchester train station in the rain. Uh, with uh, Granada TV. So there's been a long, that was in the 60s, so there's been a long interaction between African-American culture and the United Kingdom, uh, particularly where I grew up. In fact, where I did my uh, PhD at the University of Newcastle-upon-Tyne, it was the only university in the UK that awarded Dr. Martin Luther King an honorary doctorate while he was still alive in 1967. Mm. So there's a a lot of uh, background, I think, there to to draw upon and kind of fruitful relationship between African-American culture and the United Kingdom. Of course, Muddy Waters went over, and a lot of those great blues oh. artists went over to England and were kind of discovered there. A- and absolutely. then came back to the United States to, to be famous then. So it's uh, it's been an, it's an interesting transatlantic relationship, I think. Oh, I, that's a wonderful point. Um, and, I, and I love blues history, too. And you're right, these people who weren't even known that well in their own communities, especially by the white members of those communities, and yet they became stars in... Uh, the United Kingdom, uh, on the continent in Europe, uh, uh, before they came home. You're, you're exactly right and became stars. So as you, as you studied, uh, you mentioned working on that doctorate. Uh, did, you, did you have in mind that you already then, that you would be coming to the United States to write, research, and teach at that point? 
Well, certainly to do the research, I spent my first year in Newcastle and then spent the second year based here in Little Rock. Mm. Uh, that was between the summer of uh, 1992 and 1993, just when Bill Clinton... Interesting time with Bill Clinton uh, being elected November 3rd of 92. As we tape, I'm looking up at that front page from the morning of November 4th. Uh, what a night that was. I was the political editor at the time. Right. So uh, it was a wild night in my life. And then, of course, 93 being the tumultuous first year so you picked a good time to be in Arkansas. Absolutely it was a fantastic time to be and I was there against the backdrop of all that and I was there that night as well at the uh, old state house when uh, Clinton and the family came out to uh, claim the presidency so yeah it was a wonderful uh, history making year to be here. Yeah absolutely so so how do you end up on the faculty at the University of Arkansas at Little Rock? Well, it's much, much later than that. Uh, I uh, taught at the University of Wales for five years. I was at the University of London for 11 years. And then the position came up at uh, UALR uh, as chair of the history department. I thought it might be easier to work on Arkansas history based in Little Rock than in London. So I applied for the job, got the job. That was in 2010, almost 12 years ago now. And I uh, was chair of the history department for five years. Uh, director of the Anderson Institute on Race and Ethnicity for four years and uh, recently moved back to faculty and with faculty and a sabbatical and COVID, all those things uh, combined nicely to allow me to get the latest book finally finished. It's been a long burner. Absolutely. I, I, I knew you had told me a number of years ago you were waiting on it. And I, I really did anxiously await this because Winthrop Brockfellow has long been my favorite figure in Arkansas history. I want to back up just a second because I because I asked you how you became interested in the civil rights movement and you mentioned uh, uh, the impact that that had on your life growing up in the United Kingdom. But back to Arkansas specifically, why Arkansas specifically as opposed to Louisiana, as opposed to Mississippi, as opposed to Alabama or Georgia? Well, of course, the uh, 1957 Little Rock school crisis is an internationally known event. Mm -hmm. And at the time that I was starting my PhD, uh, there were a lot of studies on the civil rights movement that were taking those flashpoint events and putting them within the longer context of a much longer, uh, long civil rights movement, as it was called at the time. And a lot of those major events in other states had already been done, and they'd been put in a local and state context. And Little Rock was one of the last places that one of those major events hadn't been given that kind of treatment. So I came here really to write the long history of the civil rights movement in Arkansas and to put the history of the Central High Crisis in its much longer context, looking at the developments in the decades before and uh, the decades afterwards. Now, it, it was much needed, groundbreaking work. Now, in 2009, you're the scholar in residence at the Rockefeller Research Center in New York State. And I, I know we tend to simplify things. And I've been guilty of it in, in, in speeches through the years. And in simplifying, I, I mean by saying, well, Winthrop was kind of the black sheep son of his generation of Rockefellers. I mean, you have Nelson goes on to be vice president of the United States, of course, and run a couple of times for president. You have David, you have Lawrence, J.D. third, head of the World Bank, head of the Chase Manhattan Bank, yada, yada. But Winthrop I don't want to simplify because you go back to points in his life where there was success, but he really was different from his siblings, wasn't he? 
Absolutely. I mean, Winthrop was different, more different than the rest of his siblings. But I think the point I tried to make in the book is that being different doesn't necessarily mean, mean being less than. Yeah, or being unsuccessful. Right. Yeah. He was a Rockefeller in his own right, in his own particular way, and in a very distinctive way. And I think that's what the book tries to bring out, how he goes through these various different cycles in his life that eventually lead him to come to Arkansas. I think often we think of Rockefeller's story as one of dramatic transformation. The first two thirds of his life, as you said, he's the black sheep, uh, you know, he's the ne'er-do-well, the playboy of the family mm. who comes to Arkansas, drinks the water here, and then, you know, is transformed into an overnight success and becomes one of the greatest governors ever. It's a great story, but it's not a very perfect history. Yeah. And what I wanted to do was to go back and look at the continuities between the early life of Winthrop Rockefeller and his later life, and to try and provide a much better context for understanding uh, what happened later on in Arkansas. You talk about it, and I love how you craft the books of down down periods and then virtually these up periods, these kind of resurrections, uh, one being his service during World War II, his work in the oil fields, and then, of course, coming to Arkansas and becoming one of the iconic figures in the history of an entire state. Let's, let's start with World War II. How did that shape the man that Winthrop Rockefeller eventually became? I think it was absolutely fundamentally crucial uh, to Winthrop Rockefeller. I think if you want to understand who Winthrop Rockefeller is, there's no real better place to start than his wartime service, which really hasn't been chronicled in very much depth or mm -hmm. detail before. Uh, Winthrop himself, when he ran for governor the first time in 1964, put out his own biographical Win Rockefeller story statement, and he uh, cited his military service as his number one top achievement in his life. And uh, you can see why, I think, when you read the book, that, you know, it was something he felt very passionate about. And, you know, it was wonderful the way that he decided to go and en enlist in the army, that he said, you know, the Rockefellers owe more to American democracy than any other family in the United States. We owe this huge debt. And one of us should go and actually participate in this war on the front lines. And uh, Rockefeller, Winthrop at the time, was the only one of the brothers who was unmarried and had no children. He right. said, that should be me. And he took on that responsibility for himself. And, you know, we uh, hear a lot of stories about politicians uh, who uh, try to evade military service in one way or another or sidestep it. And yet Rockefeller volunteered for uh, to go into the Second World War as a private in the army and used his contacts actually to get put into an infantry division so he would be on the front lines. And that's a kind of very refreshing and uh, extraordinary part of his story, I think. Absolutely. So coming out of the war, and I, I want to take it up, obviously, you need to read the book. This is a very condensed interview, but coming out of the war, again, the simple version, the New York life wasn't for him as his brother's. And then you basically have the uh, the oil field period. So uh, kind of in a condensed version, talk about uh, the years after the war. And again, where he is so different from his siblings and decides yet again to go a different direction. Yeah, uh, Winthrop came back from the war and threw himself into a wide range of civic activities. Uh, again, often overlooked in his life, the fact that he... When he came to Arkansas, he had a very wide range of expertise 
and a wide range of expert experiences that were the foundations really upon which he built his public life here. He worked in health extensively, he worked in education extensively, but most prominently, as the book points out, in race relations too. Winthrop Rockefeller had a very strong relationship with the National Urban League, which is one of the big mm -hmm. six civil rights organizations in the 1960s. And, uh, you know, he worked uh, tirelessly for them. He was one of their main faces after the Second World War in the 40s and 50s. And, uh, you know, as the book says, he um, donated the equivalent of a million dollars today so that the National Urban League could buy its new national headquarters. And, you know, it wasn't just a tangential sort of uh, dalliance with them. It was he was full on and full in and uh, very committed to them. So, uh, you know, a lot of the things that we see later, his interests in Arkansas really had their foundations in the civic world of post-war New York. Now, then he leaves New York. Why? Largely because of his marriage and his relationship with, uh, as she's uh, called, Bobo Rockefeller. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, Barbara Sears Rockefeller, uh, and uh, you know, uh, married her in 1948 on Valentine's Day, 1948, yep. and uh, they had uh, Wimpole Rockefeller, who eventually, of course, became Lieutenant Governor of Arkansas. And uh, aside from unfortunate circumstances, would probably have been another governor of Arkansas. Mm -hmm. But the marriage sort of broke down fairly quickly. And with 18 months, they'd separated and went through a very tempestuous uh, divorce, a very public divorce uh, that really ultimately was the thing that pushed Winthrop out of New York. At the same time, the thing that pulled Rockefeller to Arkansas in particular, and of course, he could have gone anywhere. He had the oh, money to absolutely. set up anywhere was a, uh, a friendship that he'd struck during his World War II years with uh, Frank Newell, who was an insurance man from Little Rock. And when he was looking for somewhere else to go apart from New York, uh, Frank was somebody who he looked up to and respected, kind of as a bigger brother, I think, and uh, saw him as a, a good place to, a good person to lean on, a place to go. And Frank Newell sold Winthrop on Petit Jean Mountain and some land up there and said, you know, you should set up a farm here. And he took that on and uh, eventually sort of, you know, set down roots in the state and liked it so much here that he stayed. And, and to put this in context for those who are listening to this podcast, Rockefeller comes in 1953. And, and what makes this so amazing, a Rockefeller coming here, the richest family in the country. Nobody, of course, could have dreamed at the time the richest family in the country eventually would be from Arkansas. Uh, you never had heard of Sam Walton unless you were going to the Ben Franklin store in Newport in those days, which right. is where he was in the early 1950s. But he comes to Arkansas. This state, John, lost a higher percentage of its population than any other state in the country from 1940 to 1960. It had started of course, with the great flood of 27, the great drought of 3031, another great flood in 37, a cotton-based economy, then the mechanization of agriculture, sharecroppers, tenant farmers going to the upper Midwest. This was really, and it was six or seven years before I was born. I was born in 59 in Arkansas, but my parents certainly experienced it. This was a pretty desperate place, wasn't it, when he came here in 1953? Absolutely, yeah. The cotton economy was dying and uh, the, the state was desperate to find new 
industry to uh, invest in the state to give it a new economic lease of life. And of course, that was one of the things that launched Winthrop Rockefeller's career in the state. Soon after he moved here, Governor Orville Forbes asked him to head up the Arkansas Industrial Development Commission. Mm -hmm. And that was the first major job that he took on in the state. And he used his national contacts that he had to lure new industry into the state and to get people to come here and to create jobs in different communities and was hugely successful at doing that. And I'm sure later on, uh, Governor Forbes kind of regretted the fact that he appointed him to such a prominent position because that provided the platform for him to run against Forbes and become first Republican governor of the state. But uh, yeah, Winthrop Rockefeller was very much involved in that transition of Arkansas from a predominantly agricultural to a more industrial manufacturing base. We'll be back with more of the Southern Fried Podcast, but first, this break. Hi, Rex Nelson here. Thanks for listening so far. A lot of the topics we cover here on the Southern Fried Podcast and many more can be found on the pages of the Arkansas Democrat Gazette. If you'd like to support this great newspaper's commitment to bringing you the latest in Arkansas news, sports, and entertainment, consider subscribing to the Democrat Gazette today. With your subscription, you'll get a digital edition of the newspaper every morning, along with the latest news and updates delivered to you on an iPad, provided at no extra cost. For just $34 a month, you'll get the same award-winning journalism you've come to expect from the Democrat Gazette, including my three weekly columns, plus exclusive photo galleries, videos, articles, and digital extras all in the palm of your hand. To sign up today, call 1-800-482-1121 or visit us online at arkansasonline.com forward slash subscribe. Welcome back to the Southern Fried Podcast, a production of the Arkansas Democrat Gazette. So your book only goes up to 1956. So let's go back to those first three years in Arkansas, 53, 56. Based on your study, and I've always been curious about this, what was it about Arkansas, about the people here? What was there inside Rockefeller that convinced him to stay and ended up staying the rest of his life here rather than making this, say, a short respite of a couple of years and then going back to Manhattan or wherever. I think that throughout his life, he returned to very similar situations. And he goes through these various cycles, as we said. And what he finds in Arkansas is something that I think speaks to the experiences that he's had in his early life. And, you know, these cycles are, you know, from the very earliest years, he really didn't fit in with a lot of the rest of the Rockefeller family, even when he was a child growing up. He was bullied mercilessly mm -hmm. by his brothers. And he found uh, comfort and friendship outside of the family home. And Rockefeller would often play with the gardener's sons, with the chauffeur's sons, with those folks, you know, and he would go into town at the weekends and organize cleanup squads with them to keep the litter away. And, you know, I think he felt from a very, very early age a kind of greater empathy with the common folk. Uh, through that and you know it, then he went into these kind of prep schools in the East Coast but eventually he ended up dropping out of Yale 
to go and work in the oil fields. And again, that brought him back to common folks, working with his hands in the oil fields, doing those kinds of things. Then he came back to New York, didn't have a particularly successful uh, pre-Second World War civic career. Then he went into World War II, and again, he was in his element, hanging out with these ordinary folks, working with his hands, doing those kinds of things. And I'd see he's moved to Arkansas as a kind of next cycle of that, moving back among ordinary folks, working with his hands. And that's where he seemed throughout his life to gravitate towards and be uh, most comfortable with. And so I think, you know, that, that what I set up in the book is kind of the, the cycle of movement towards a place like Arkansas and a situation like Arkansas that he'd always really, in many ways, returned to throughout his life. You start the book with an anecdote that I love, and uh, it's basically where your story for this volume at least ends in September of 1956, and it's Rockefeller showing off his ranch atop Petty Jean. Uh, he's got a Saturday Evening Post, which was one of the leading magazines in the country at the time, journalists there, and you start with his quote, this is my show. What was the attraction of the top of Petty Jean Mountain. Like I said, we were a cotton-based economy. Uh, uh, farmers had gone broke up there for years because it was hard to raise anything in that old rocky land, really bad land that pretty much grew rocks and cedar trees is about all. What was the attraction to the top of that mountain and the drive that caused him to create a show place up there? And I, and I can tell you, John, as a kid in the 60s, like a a lot of our Kansans, I do have very clear memories as a young boy of going up with my parents all the way from southwest Arkansas, where I grew up, to tour the ranch because it's something that our our Kansans took great pride in that we had a Rockefeller here. But what what drew him up there in those early years? I think there's a duality to it in Rockefeller. You know, on the one hand, he was always trying to escape the Rockefeller family and become his own person and, you know, express his own individual identity in the particular brand of being a member of the Rockefeller family that he identified with. And so, you know, that kind of took him to places and sites that the other brothers would never have dreamed of going. So he was open to going to a place like Arkansas. But it's also, you know, one of the fascinating things about Petty Jean Mountain that visitors who've been to Rockefeller's family home where he grew up in Kaikut uh, in uh, Westchester County. You know, that uh, his, his grandfather's home was uh, John D. Rockefeller Seniors. And it uh, looks across the Hudson River and it's right up on a, on a hilltop overlooking there. And if you look at where Rockefeller set up on Petty Jean Mountain, the scenery there and where it looks over the Arkansas River and the whole environment is not that a million miles away from where he grew up as a yeah, boy at yeah. Kaikut. So there's a kind of fascinating resonance with his early life and he was always invested in being a Rockefeller and he always had ties to the family. It wasn't that of break, but he always wanted to do that in his own different way. So Petty Jean in some ways solves both of those things. It reminds him of home. It's an environment he's familiar with, but it's also removed from the rest of the Rockefeller family and a place where he can sow his independence seeds as, the, as a member of the Rockefeller family and do the different kinds of things that he wanted to do. But, you know, Again, it's steeped in a lot of his past. The idea of owning a farm, a cattle farm, came when he first toured uh, Latin America with his brother Nelson in 1937. They toured for two months and went to the Argentinian cattle ranches there and came back besotted. And both of them for a decade afterwards spoke about setting up a ranch together and going into this business and doing that kind of thing. And because it never worked out, their father didn't really uh, approve, so that he didn't give them the money to do that. But 
Uh, Nelson eventually set up a ranch near the King Ranch in Texas and had ranches in Venezuela. And Winthrop fulfilled his ambitions uh, when he moved to Arkansas. So, you know, it was a long time in the making in some ways. Uh, this idea of, uh, of having a ranch or building a cattle farm and, and raising cattle had been around for quite a while in the back of his mind. It just didn't come to him when he moved to Arkansas. It was something that, you know, had been there for quite a while. And, you know, one of the, one of the great stories I, I really enjoy from the book, uh, from his very early life, uh, when he was in uh, Lincoln High School, uh, in elementary school in New York, uh, one of the uh, class projects that he did was explaining how silos worked and how mm. farms worked, you know, and that it was an experiential school and they used to go and visit farms and all those kinds of things. So, you know, it's kind of uh, fascinating to, to look at him doing these projects on silos, uh, you know, when he's a pre-teenager, pre when you know that, you know, those silos are now an iconic part of the Winthrop Rockefeller Institute as it is today up on Petagene Mountain. So there's all, all those kinds of ties that I found fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. between the, his life before he moved here and his life after he came to Arkansas. Now, you mentioned uh, the King Ranch. Of course, he brought the Santa Gertrudis cattle that had been developed on the King Ranch of South Texas to Petty Jean. And as I mentioned, it was a show place. It was something Arkansans took pride in visiting. And, and Rockefeller loved having visitors there. But I, I don't want to pass this in those early years in the 1950s, especially again, with your knowledge of the civil rights movement, without mentioning that he puts a black man in, in charge. That that was pretty unheard of in Arkansas in the 1950s. Absolutely. Jimmy Hudson was someone who he'd known for decades before he came here, and had been a really important figure in uh, guiding him through the black community in New York. Mm -hmm. And he was one of the very few people who came with Rockefeller to Petty Jean, and as you said, he set him up as general and superintendent of the farm there and made it known that if uh, people from the locality wanted to work with him, they'd have to work with Jimmy Hudson, and that upended the racial hierarchy in the state. But uh, it shows that, you know, Rockefeller brought his convictions to the state with him. You know, he had this long history of working in race relations, and uh, he came here determined to uh, put his stamp on the state and not to be... Um, not to be uh, kind of pulled under by the state and, and compromise his principles and setting an African-American general superintendent up at Winrock Farms sort of showed that, you know, I'm come here, but I've come to do it on my own terms. I'm going to do it in my own way. Your book I mentioned ends in 1956. Uh, I have to ask you, uh, can can we look for a another volume on those those Arkansas years, the rest of his life, including his four years as governor from from you coming up at some point? Well, it's certainly a possibility. I'll leave the door open to that for yeah. the for the second act in, in Arkansas, because it's taken 12 years to write this book, and a lot of yeah. things have happened along the way. I've been chair of department, uh, head of an institute on race and ethnicity, and written four other books in the meantime. Yeah. So uh, now's a good time to take a breath and take a step back and think about what uh, what the next project should be. Uh, so I thankfully have a little time to think about that, but that would certainly be one that uh, I would love to do, to write the sequel to this, mm -hmm. uh, having got it to 1956. And, you know, I, I, the book is called From New Yorker to Arkansas. And, of course, Winthrop Rockefeller comes here in 1953. But um, he's not really in Arkansas when he comes in 53. He's just in the state. And right. a lot of people don't really know whether he's going to stay or not. And even his own family, uh, you know, in Christmas of 1953, is saying, we'll look forward to seeing you back in the new year. 
So it's not clear cut by then. And 56, I think, is a key year because he puts down roots then. He's finished Winrock Farms. He sets up Rock, the Rock Wind Fund, which today is the Winthrop Rockefeller Foundation. Mm -hmm. And you can see by 1956 that he's setting down those roots. I think the year after, in 1957, which of course is the school crisis year, is a pivotal turning point for Rockefeller in the state. And uh, he thinks very deeply about what his role is going to be in the state in the context of that crisis and the context of civil rights and the way that the state needs to go. So I think that 56 is a good year to kind of get him established in Arkansas. But I think what happens after that uh, pushes him in a very different sort of direction than when he originally came to the state. I've suddenly got this vision in my head, and that is John's going to do this next volume, but he's going to say, man, there's so much packed into these last years of his life. It's going to be multiple volumes. He's going to be to Winthrop Rockefeller, what Robert Cairo is to Lyndon Johnson, and you're going to be 90 years old, and people are going to say, hurry up, get that last volume done before you pass away. <laughs> but, I, but I do hope there are worse things. <laughs> I do hope I do hope there is another volume coming before we before we close out and I know we're I'm passing uh, uh, this volume into uh, which again ends in 56 into that period of governor from 67 to 71 but you know I'm a mere amateur Arkansas historian but in my mind because of the changes that were set in motion I view Winthrop Rockefeller as our greatest governor, I know that most historians that have studied Arkansas certainly have him in that top tier, in that top three or four. Where in your mind do you put his governorship, and, and if you have him very high, why? Well, absolutely, because I think he made a fundamental transformation in the state. Uh, you know, he was the first Republican governor in 94 years uh, when he was elected to office. And in many ways, he broke up that good old boy, Southern Democratic institution. You know, he ran in 1966 against Jim Johnson, who had been head of the uh, citizens councils in the state and the vanguard of opposition to school desegregation. And when Winthrop Rockefeller came into office, you know, that old guard democratic machine kind of died. And uh, one of the important things that I think Rockefeller did was open the way for a change in the Democratic Party. And, you know, you went from Jim Johnson to Dale Bumpers as the next person, you know, and you mm -hmm. went to uh, David Pryor and then Bill Clinton. You had a series of far different new Democrats who were much more progressive that came after Rockefeller. So Rockefeller really, I think, was a pivotal figure in ushering in a whole new era of Arkansas politics, completely transformational. And that, I think to me, is his most enduring legacy in the state, that the fact that he brought about just such a fundamental shift in Arkansas politics. 12 years in the works, as uh, John said, uh, and it is out now from the University of Arkansas Press, just released, Winthrop Rockefeller, from New Yorker to Arkansas, your 1912 to 1956. Dr. John Kirk from the University of Arkansas at Little Rock. I, I, I could have made this several hours. I so enjoy talking Rockefeller, but thank you, and please come back and let's do it again at some point in the future and cover some other ground on, on this, this fascinating man who chose Arkansas as his home for the final years of his life. 
My pleasure. I'd love to do that. All right. John Kirk, I'm Rex Nelson from the Arkansas Democrat Gazette. Thank you for joining us for another edition of the Southern Pride Podcast, a production of the Arkansas Democrat Gazette.